All right, welcome out into the show. We are back. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the snare campaign provocateur, international man of mystery. He's going this way. He's going that way. He's going this way, that way. He's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? What's up, man? How are you? I'm good. What's up? Back stateside. Yeah, it's nice to to get back to the things I understand. (laughs) But I got to say, I mean, I've spent so much time in places like Germany and England and Ireland and where I was on this tour that, you know, there's all these weird, I always mess up this word, but familiarities (laughs) about, you know, about going over there and certain things I missed and like, you know, it's even hard. Like the first time I see a German breakfast spread. Yeah which includes just the most delicious rolls and spreads you've ever had in your life. It's hard not to gorge, you know, and like, like everyone's like, Oh, what did you have too much beer? And Oh, what do you do? Cocaine out there? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> German bread is, is my vice. Right. I get out there. Um, yeah, but it, it's strange. It's like, even, you know, in the, in the fall, like in New Jersey, if, if it's like 50 degrees and I walk by somebody smoking a cigarette, it reminds me of Germany right? <laughs> and it like takes me right there. So, so it's kind of cool to reconnect those sensories and, you know, and, and go to places I've been so many, it's, it's a strange thing for like a person to say, you know, like, or it's a strange thing for me to say when I'm like, well, you know, it's like my seventh, eighth, ninth time in Berlin. So I don't like feel the need where I have to go out and be a tourist anymore. I can just like, kind of do the things I like and not make like the early traveler mistakes, you know, like, uh, like for instance, we had a, like a half of a day off in London and there is the tube strike going on where the tube operators are, are, are striking. We're so bad that even like Coldplay canceled their show at Wembley and stuff like that. You know, and sort of late in the day. And I wanted to go to Carnaby Street, which is a great like shopping area where they have a restaurant called Mother Mash that does proper sausage pie and mash, mm. but vegan, mm. which is, you know, and I've been there a lot. It's it's amazing. And I was like, you know what? I don't have the juice. <laughs> I just don't have the juice. I got to chill. I was in the Hammersmith area, so there's plenty to do around there. But I felt bad because our drum tech, Mitch, who we brought out, was his first time in England. And I was like, oh, man, like I wanted to I feel like I'm disappointing him by not taking a tube ride and going down to Carnaby and this and that. But we start walking around Hammersmith and we're looking for something to eat. And, you know, we pass all these places. And I know from dozens of times of being in London that there's only two things you should eat there as an American. You should either eat like classic good pub food which is where like the good fresh homemade food is made there or curry yeah like those are the two things you should eat in london but an american eating you know some sort of weird continental food mexican food pizza anything like that you you're just you're setting yourself up for disappointment and my my many times in london at least like i felt good where i found the place i'm like this looks right let's look at the menu we got proper pies, nice cask beers, and I felt like a good, you know, experienced traveler that day. And I gave Mitch a, a good experience. But I think that's something that's changed 
and and something that was palpable when I was traveling this time was I used to really focus on like the day as an entire experience, you know? Uh, and now I think because of my energy levels, being older, my physical problems, all sorts of stuff, it's all about the show, you know? And like everything that happens before the show, like doesn't matter because I'm at work, you know? And I used to not really view it like that. And it's actually like kind of relieving, yeah. you know? It's like, it's like, yeah, you know what? I am in Edinburgh. I haven't been to Scotland in a while, but I'm in this weird part of town. I know I'm in a weird part of town because I've walked around here before. I don't feel like going into town. I got to, you know what? I'm going to lay down for 20 minutes, read my book, and actually play a better show. <laughs> so that's some new old man touring shit that I'm, that I'm, that, that was pretty noticeable. I love that. And the shows seemed absolutely electric. Following along on all the social channels. Um, how you feeling? I saw the Instagram of your hands torn up. How was that getting back into the swing of it? Well, that's fine. That that was to be expected. And actually, that didn't get as bad as I thought it would. Yeah. Um, if this was like 10 years ago, those hands would have looked like they went through a meat grinder. I'm a much more controlled player than I used to be. But there's no amount of practice you can do to get your hands ready for that stuff. And I was expecting some holes. So that part, that part was fine to be expected. Um, I think it took, you know, not a couple days to knock the dust off because I think all the shows were good, but by a certain time, I really did feel while we were on stage that, that, that awesome special connection was happening again between like us and, and the fans while we were on stage and, like, you know, I, I I was convincing myself by the day that we were worthy of the ticket price and worthy of all the fucking hoopla and that, you know, this is a worthwhile experience for people to go to and we can do it together and kind of this, you know, the thing that makes like the whole thing beautiful and not just the business. Like I felt it and it was there and I'm stoked about that. Um, and musically, what's cool is like, you know, individually, none of the guys, myself included, stopped playing music. So it's kind of like, you know, when you, you haven't seen like a niece or a nephew in like a year or two and they're just, whoa, you got big, you know, like some of the guys I'm like, listen, I'm like, oh, shit, you got better, you know, like and and I think because of that individually, like we all kept playing music and we all kept honing our crafts. Uh, you know, separately from each other. And now when it's back together, you can actually really feel that like as musicians, I think we're, we're better players, you know, and just older and uh, have the shit locked down a little more. So, uh, yeah, on that, on that side, everything feels great. Um, you know, the only downside for me was like uh, just, you know, I live in the forest, like um, getting back out there with the traveling with, you know, the flights getting out there and jumping onto a bus with, you know, it's it was a 15 capacity bus with 15 people in it. Um, it was it was tight, man. And it was like overstimulating and took a few days to kind of get back into that, like tour mode of completely seizing any idea of control in certain moments, you know, yeah. which is so antithetical to the way I live my life at home. Because it's all about like, oh, we're doing this, we're doing this. Come on, guys. You know, like I'm bossing around a group of people all day. 
And then you go, you're like, oh, wait, right. I'm at the will of the machine and I just got to be part of this, you know, and but it's hard and it's a little scary. I had a couple panicky moments, but figured it out and I'm alive <laughs> back in my weird office. And yeah, so I'd say it's party bonus. I know? love it. Just giving it all up and just, you know, honestly, I think most people need that in their daily life. Just something to come along and be like, you know what? You're not in control here. You're not in control as you as much as you think you are. So, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, there's definitely something about tour that can make you feel like just this this world is operating and you're just this this strange little piece in it. You know, it's yeah. it's like it's definitely puts you inside of the gears and kind of makes it more apparent than it does in your daily life, you know. Also, and shout out to our big fans and uh, friends over at Dime Store Forum keeping stats on this tour. Oh, did you, come on. Did you get Analytics. <laughs> I was so stoked. They know that, too. They know I'm a fucking stat nerd. And they were like, yo, Benny's going to love this. And I did. Oh, my God. I eat those stats up when I see them. The fact- I'm going to start ranking songs. <laughs> I'm going to have like a Hall of Fame soon. I'm going to do the whole thing. The the fact that uh handwritten is like your star player and like senior and like the queen is on like the vet minimum it's like the udonis haslam and like sink or swim is like mr (laughs) 3000 now like people are just dying for bernie mac to get another hit they're like come on come on play play johnny so bernie mac can get 3000 i love it uh shout out to them looking forward to that um, yeah. the upcoming uh, they've been awesome yeah. they've like all the dime store stuff's been awesome it's like such a cool way to witness your own band you know with someone doing such nice documentation yeah. of it like it's pretty cool and gaslight historically has always been fairly awful at self-documenting um none of us are <laughs> particularly nostalgic in that way so so it's good to have for sure i i love that well, you know what segment is always nostalgic, and it's been a while since we haven't uh, th- since we've done it. It's I this day wait. in music uh, history. I missed it. I missed it. This is a go. I you know I read this whole article about Steve Wozniak putting on a festival in 1982 in the desert. It was pretty interesting, kind of cool. So I was doing some research on that, and then something really stood out to me. Which is in 1991, Rush, the mighty triumvirate, released their 14th studio album, Roll the Bones. Now, only like Rush nerds would know this, but but Rush took a little hiatus prior to this. They had done the the Presto tour, which was like known to be like one of the biggest, craziest arena rock tours ever made. I mean, literally, there was. Uh, giant hats with rabbits that popped out on the side. It was like this really wild thing. And I think the real Rush fans didn't know if Rush was going to do another record or not. Um, So to someone like my mom at the time, Roll the Bones coming out was a big fucking deal. And like a lot of things that if I'm honest about with music, like, you know, it's always cool to be like, oh, I like this. I like the early albums. But I think if most people are honest with themselves, they love the most their entry album, you know, Mm -hmm. and like roll the bones was the first rush record that came out when I was an active rock fan already. Like I knew who rush was. My brother was in the fan club, the whole deal. But this was like the first record that was like mine. It came out and I bought it and, 
and got to sit with it. And uh, to this day, Dreamline and The Big Wheel are in constant rotation. I love those songs. I'm really nostalgic for this record, even though on the song Roll the Bones, Getty Lee decides to rap. Okay. Uh-oh. It's an early 90s faux pas. A lot of people fell into it. He modulates his voice. I always thought it was like someone else. Like he got like some guy with a deep voice to do it. And right. then later in life, I realized it was Getty with a voice modulator going, Jack, relax. Get busy with the facts. No zodiacs or almanacs. No maniacs or polyester slacks. It's bad. It's a bad part. But Blondie did it. The Ramones did it. A lot of people have fallen into the let's do a hip hop verse on our tracks. But the culmination of this story and one of the reasons this record is so important to me was the Roll the Bones concert was my first concert. Oh, wow. Um, So when this record came out, we finally had a chance to see Rush. Me, my mom and my brother went to the uh, then Brendan Byrne Arena up at the Turnpike. Went to the swamp and we saw Rush with Mr. Big opening. Uh, and it was like my first like epic concert experience. I remember I was into Mr. Big, so I was really into the singles. And the second the lights turned out on Rush, I went, what's that smell? And it was the first time my mom's like, that's marijuana. Uh, <laughs> back in the early 90s at the Brendan Byrne, you could still smoke a J when the lights went down, you know, like the good old days when we were all allowed to give ourselves cancer. Um, so anyway, it was a very memorable uh, uh, record for me. So when I saw this pop up in the feed, I was happy to talk about it. Love that. The first record's a big one. It, it, it's so funny. My first like big show like that was uh, your nemesis and the Eagles just out here. Oh, I know. fucking Hanley. I know. I know. But uh, Joe Walsh crushed it that night. And I was like, okay. what is this? So that kind of turned me on. But uh, all right, Benny. On this day in 2005, I'm going to keep it music, but I'm going to keep it music politics of Jace. On this day in 2005, Kanye West went at George Bush. You can't resist. Saying oh, George yeah. Bush doesn't care about black people. Standing right next to a baffled Mike Myers, who <laughs> think about at that time, Mike Myers had done so much live TV. And yeah. To get him speechless in front of everybody, that, take, that takes that a real genius. Yeah. 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 That might be the last cool thing Kanye did. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. How long ago was that? 17 uh, years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, though, that's important to remember in that context Kanye was on a telethon raising money for hurricane Katrina victims. So I think, you know, where what he said was super obvious at the time and not like public sent, like for someone like me, who is a 25 year old punk rocker. Yeah. George Bush didn't give a fuck about black people. We all knew it. Everyone knew it. So it wasn't like the craziness of what he said. It was in the middle of a live telethon you know, like dropping bombs like out of nowhere, which was like, oh, shit. And yeah, the face of Mike Myers, who just did not know what to do. He's just this Canadian who's trying to raise money for an area. He has no idea what's going on. He's just like, oh, what did I stumble into here? Yeah, that shit's hilarious. But yeah, respect to the last, last legit thing Kanye probably ever did. 
peak pink polo Kanye walks into there and they're all trying to raise money. There's Leo, there's Richard Gere, there's Glenn Coase, <laughs> Harry Connick Jr., Wynton Marsalis yeah. at probably the peak of Wynton Marsalis and just Kanye steals it forever. Incredible. Not bad. Not bad. I'll give him that one. All right, Benny. First headline today. We're going to start off with the hoops here because yesterday, mm. as we were getting ready to come back to you all, we had a bomb of epic proportions. The Cleveland Cavaliers have acquired three-time All-Star guard Donovan Mitchell in a trade with the Utah Jazz. Uh, the Cavaliers are sending forward Laurie Markkinen, uh, Oche Agave, man, you know, I, I I put the phonetic in there for a reason. You tried, you I, tried. I put the, wait, no, I got it. Oh, you got it, you got it. Oh, oh, I would have said Agjabi for Ochai sure. Agabi, uh guard yeah. Con Sexton, protect, uh, three unprotected first-round picks and two pick swaps. Um, that That's incredible for Donovan Mitchell. More importantly, this gives Cleveland a seat among the Eastern Conference contenders. Uh, Cleveland adds Donovan Mitchell to two 2022 All-Stars and Darius Garland and center uh, Jared Allen and Rookie of the Year runner-up Evan Mobley, who many think is going to be an All-Star in due time. Uh, my initial takeaway for this is, man, Danny Ainge doing it again. 13 unprotected picks through 2029, but... I do love what the Utah Jazz are doing here. You put uh, you put Sexton and Markinen with Bogdanovich, Clarkson, Mike Conley. That's a better five than the Lakers got right now. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll talk about the Jazz later, yeah. but I, I'm assuming that uh, by the time we're actually playing real basketball, Mike Conley, Bogdanovich, and Clarkson may all not be part of the Jazz because mm. that's not part of the plan. This is called the Ainge. This should just be called the, <laughs> the Ainge now. Whatever whatever package comes back with unprotected picks. He did it to the Nets. He's been doing it forever. <laughs> I think this is now called the Ainge when you get when you get more than 3 unprotected first rounders, right? Can mm-hmm. we just change yeah, the terminology the here? <laughs> but from the Cavs point of view, I loved it. I felt like the Knicks who we'll talk about later were kind of sitting in that that cat seat position where they were like, no one else is throwing an offer out. If you don't like ours, then, then fuck you. And they were kind of sitting in this position and you know, whatever they had some kind of deadline and they, they marked the RJ Barrett extension and, and that, that toppled it. And I think Cleveland saw this window, had the picks and we're like, you know what? Fuck it. Like this is the time to go for it. And from their end, I think you got to do it. Like, you know, when's the last time you've seen, some big, you know, free agent want to come to Cleveland without LeBron James. They haven't won a playoff series without LeBron James since 1992. And they got what could be, you know, some some fairly generational piece. And it's the time to go all in. You know me. I'm not the biggest Donovan Mitchell guy. You've heard me say on this podcast a bunch of times Donovan Mitchell is good, but he's not good enough. He's not a number one alpha dog. I never thought he was. And in the context of Utah, he had to be. He was the the scorer. He was the guy, the engine. You know, when I look at this team with what they've already done, and and as you said, uh, Mobley, you know, potentially like stepping into a more dominant role, he gets to be a little more of a piece here rather than the guy. And that's that's important. And I think that's the situation Donovan Mitchell should be in. Now they have this kind of big four 
mixed in with like a Coro, Karis LeVert, Kevin Love, some interesting side pieces. And, you know, to me, that puts them right in the mix of, I'd say, the second tier of Eastern Conference teams. I, I, until I see it on the floor, I'm not willing to put them into this, you know, Milwaukee, Boston, sort of Philly tier. Brooklyn. That I, Brooklyn's the same as Cleveland right now. You know, until I see, like, Ben Simmons hold a basketball and do something <laughs> with it, I'm not willing to put them among that group. I can't. Yeah. They got swept in the playoffs last year. I can't. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, I'm not putting them over the top yet because they have sort of an obvious lack of depth and a clear lack of a rotational wing, you know, like, I don't know who, you know, you, you can spread Mobley and Jared Allen out a lot for bigs. They're mobile guys that you can't really isolate and get into trouble, but also you just added two, six, one guards who have defensive efficiency deficiencies and sort of this huge gap in like a wing player, you know, so I do think that they're a solid wing player away from doing anything real. Um, and, you know, after let's say one injury on this team, you're getting a lot of Lamar Stevens or a lot of Dean Wade, you know, like, like the shelf drops off on the Cavs here about like eight or nine on the roster. Yeah. So, but I think, listen, Mobley is 21 yeah. Garland's 23. Allen's 24, Mitchell's 26. They're all locked up for the next two years. It's a lot of fun, and I think it's a move they had to do. Why the fuck not? You you let it play out for two seasons. You might break through, and if not, you still kind of have your your young core, and then you move on from Mitchell. So I think for Cleveland, it was it was smart. And in this day and age, all those picks are just the equity needed to make this kind of deal done and they had to close the deal so that's where i feel about it from the cleveland standpoint yeah if donovan mitchell can get back up closer to 40 percent from three because that's kind of where i I wonder you know like you got the twin towers down there but if they're gonna uh, kick it out to you on from from deep and you can't hit that shot like close to 40 percent of the time because garland isn't exactly like a lights out three-point shooter either oh, yeah, I, I, I think yet. he's was 38 percent last year Mitchell career 36 percent so you'd like to see that more um but in terms of them in the east um you know I I, I think the tiers are kind of working out exactly like you said I think we have Boston and Milwaukee up top and I very much have Brooklyn as a wait and see but this next tier in the eastern conference is so interesting to me yeah. because you've got Philadelphia as you said you got Miami uh Toronto's still there you know they still got their core together Atlanta added DeJounte Murray and now Cleveland adds Don- <laughs> Donovan Mitchell that's already all of your playoff teams right there actually that's more than your playoff teams. yeah that's and you didn't nine. even you didn't even mention Chicago Chicago who, yeah. who was last year's <laughs> Cleveland that's right you know Miami like yeah there's gonna be one or two very good teams in the east who's not going to be in the playoffs next year thank god for the plan tournament right that's good might save the Knicks that's from, right from complete fucking <laughs> catastrophe oh, just setting me up to slam it down let's move over to the Knicks and Benny, the conversation here locally is how the Knicks screwed up the Donovan Mitchell thing, which I think is a bit of an over-exaggeration. Um, the Knicks did not have a Sexton or a Markinen to offer up. Um, but if I was a Knicks fan, I would be super worried that over the next few years, you have $300 million 
uh, tied up in Brunson, Randall, and Barrett. So uh, do you agree with the conjecture around here that uh, uh, New York was a realistic landing spot, or, or is this just uh, people trying to get all in on the Knicks like they do every time there's a big-time guy available? Well, no, I think this time was different for a bunch of reasons. Like, if the Knicks were a random team in this in this instance, I'd give them a pass. And you know I'm not anti-Nick, even though I'm pro-Net. I, I got Knicks, Knicks blood in my family. I root for the Knicks. But I'm sorry, was this not the plan? <laughs> like, like, this is where you see teams go through this a lot, where, like, the teams who are successful are the ones – who can see through the noise and stick to the plan, right? What have the Knicks been doing with all these trades in the last couple of years if it wasn't collecting the draft capital to make a big move, to get a big player, to get the Knicks on a bigger stage than they've been? That's what it was about. And the player actually wanted to come. Like this wasn't some one of these you know, times in the past where they're like, well, we're saving money in case LeBron wants to come in case this, this guy wanted to come. Yeah. He's here. He's from here. He wanted to actually come play for the Knicks. So in this instance, yes, they should have fucking pulled the trigger. And I think they kind of blew it. And now like we just described, like you're, you're sending this team into the East, which is a bit of a buzzsaw this year. And it's hard to see the Knicks, break through the top eight, let alone the top 10 at this point. And you just, as you said, put all this money into some, some, some interesting players. You don't know exactly. I think I was into the Brunson deal from the second they did it. I liked it. I think it's cool, but Barrett would have to take a huge step up offensively, uh, you know, for anything to be like that. Randall would have to be some exact version of what he was two years ago, which we've talked about again, you know, like, you know, he's one of the more underwhelming players for me at the at the price that they pay for him. So I do think the Knicks made a mistake. And, and uh, you know, I think spurning this deal is a strange look and the team's pretty good to OK. But, you know, the second they run into problems, they're going to get torn up for this this season. And it puts like a new kind of onus on RJ Barrett that you might not want to do. You know what I mean? All of a sudden this is like, all right, well, you're the savior. Now we turned down this trade and gave you the money. Um, I think this is a pretty bad setup for the Knicks. I'm kind of worried about him. I'm worried about the Knicks, but I'm more worried about Jalen Brunson. Why do you leave arguably a generational talent in, in Luka Doncic? I get your dad's a coach. So I get you grew up with Leon Rose, but come on, dude. Like, Whenever you have a chance to play with a guy like Luca, you play with a guy like Luca. I don't care how much the New York Knicks are offering you to be the quote guy. Like, do you want a ring or do you want to be the guy? And and, and that's a question oh. that a lot of guys struggle with. Sure. Uh, and not everyone has the same, you know, intentions as everyone else. Like, yes, does Jalen Brunson did he want to like win championships in a city like Dallas being like the second heel and barely noticed. Like, I guess not. And that's kind of fair. Mm. You know what I mean? Some people like to be the, the lead guitar player, not the bass player. You know, they want to, they want a little love and you know, some people don't want to live in fucking Dallas. Like some people, I don't know. Like there's a lot of reasons to this stuff that we don't know. Um, I can't hate on Brunson for a decision he made. Like I, you know, I think that's cool. And Brunson's not the guy uh, you know, that I'm, I'm mad at or, or concerned about in this case, honestly. Um, 
It's but but the but the overall look of the Knicks right now is a little scary. Uh, and unless you know, the only thing that saves the Knicks at this point to me is if Donovan Mitchell's uh, deficiencies are so apparent that it looks like he wasn't worth the deal. And like, you know, I think that's the only leg for the Knicks to stand on at this point was like, Hey, listen, giving up that much draft capital is dangerous. And we don't think he was worth it, you know, and maybe they were right, but this is one of those ones that like, who the fuck knows for, for a couple more years, like exactly uh, how this, how this is going to pan out for both teams. There was a report that at the start of talks in July that the Knicks offered R.J. Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, Obi Toppin, and the three picks, which, like I said before, is not as good as getting Sexton and no. Markkanen. So I heard. I heard the last offer was R.J. Barrett, Quentin Grimes, and two unprotected. So which still not better, you know? Yeah, no, not even close to better. So yeah, I think. Uh, Cleveland came in, they swooped in and they got their dude and they have a big four and, you know, like sky's the limit. The last interesting piece and the media coverage this offseason of these different moves has been interesting. There's a lot of these local New York people that are saying, oh, the Knicks are doing good. They're sticking with the process. Those are Tibbs and Leon Rose, guys. And you know exactly <laughs> yeah. where their bread's being buttered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just, just the same way some some reporters are highlighting more Danny Ainge, more than how Kobe Altman has turned around the Cavs yet again after losing it all. So it's been kind of interesting to see uh, who's getting a little uh, dollars out the back door from these different guys for exposure and all sorts of other things. It's true. Definitely true. All right, Benny, let's move on to your nets here. And boy, we picked a great month not to do podcasts for you. I'll tell you that right now, because <laughs> you would have been on the edge, back off the edge, on the edge, back off the edge. It's very true. <laughs> it's very true. I've had ma- many emotions <laughs> in the last month. But instead, you keep your guy, uh, KD, and the Nets have decided to move forward with their partnership, which is exactly how humans talk. Um, and... Uh, for right now, Steve Nash is safe. Sean Marks is safe. Uh, but the Nets, this story is not over, and the Nets still seem kind of up against it. Yeah, I mean, it's if there's, I don't know if there's a bigger variable in the NBA than than the Nets at this point. I would, you know, like to confirm on wax with you that this is exactly what I said would happen, like maybe yeah. two, three months ago, whenever KD dropped his initial bomb. Ben Stradamus. I never saw the trade. I didn't, it didn't seem realistic. I thought Kyrie Irving pushed, you know, uh, the, the ownership and stuff to a point where they started drawing a line. I think Sean Marks was given the, uh, given the torch to also draw the line. You know, I, I think him and Joe Sy seemed to have a, a, a connection where they, they, they're in tandem on decisions like this. And, when Marks did that press conference talking about Kyrie Irving not showing up and stuff like that, to me, it felt like he he had the nod from Joe's side to do that. And I think Kevin Durant <laughs> ran into something that's kind of interesting. And I don't want to boast about it because it's shitty why it even exists. But there's Kevin Durant rich and there's Joseph Sy rich. And they're very fucking different. You know, Kevin Durant isn't like puppet mastering like people's lives all over the world and doing like the craziest fucking Freemason bullshit, whatever happens at the top top that we won't know. And Kevin Durant's a basketball player. 
And I think he finally ran into a situation where he's like, oh, like, you know, I, I don't know. This guy could have me killed. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like all of a sudden he turned into one of us. You know, he's like, she's like, fuck, fuck my $200 million. This guy might black bag me or something. Like, you know, he's on a boat somewhere in like the, the Far East. He doesn't even know what's happening. So I think Kevin Durant ran into a little bit of that this summer, you know, and when he tried to make the hard line about firing the GM and coach, I think this guy, you know, kind of was like, hey, I'll invent like a, a computer chip that'll act just like you and then rescind your contract. You know, some real scary shit, probably. So uh, but at the same token, like how this season is going to play out to me is really dictated early, like very early. Um, if the Nets come out in the first month and they're, you know, 15 and four and they had a couple primetime wins and Simmons is playing and Kyrie's playing and Durant's playing and all these side pieces are actually back and healthy. All of this goes away. All of it. No one's going to, it's going to be that Kobe Bryant situation from the mid, you know, uh, from the aughts, you know, all over again, where like when Kobe was in the playoffs that season, was anybody still talking about his contract disputes preseason? No. So I think playing well kind of will put this story away really fast. And I think people are, um, would be quick to put the nets back into that top tier of Eastern conference teams. And then here we go, you know, sky's the limit. You got all these guys locked up. But the variable is so strong on the other side. You know what I mean? Where like this could fucking within a month, we could have Steve Nash fired. We could have like like I think he's obviously the first block now that's going to happen now that everybody came back. If if things get bad, I think Nash's head's the first to roll at this point. He probably understands it. I don't know how much Nash he wants to be there anymore. It's not the job he took. It's kind of not what he signed up for. You know, his year last year must have been fucking miserable trying to talk to the press all year about this stuff. So but, you know, like like, is there a bigger variable than what Ben Simmons is going to be, what Kyrie Irving is going to do, you know, and all that stuff. And the Nets can't work without those pieces. I love what they did this offseason. You know, they acted as if. Uh, this wasn't happening and they still built their team and they built their roster and they got Nick Claxton back. They got Patty Mills back. Curry's coming back off surgery. Joe Harris is healthy. Uh, they traded for Royce O'Neal. They signed TJ Warren. Um, some of the rookies from last year, you know, like Cam Thomas and a couple uh Dayron Sharp are useful players who are, who have another year under their belt. Um, so, you know, the only obvious hole in the Nets roster is like, what do they do in the in the five slot when you're playing against a Giannis or an Embiid who has a dominant big? Um, Claxton's a nice kid. He's still a little skinny and, you know, can get banged around by people like that. So he's not the full time answer there. But this is this is uh, the biggest variable team I think there is maybe in the NBA this season. And and I get to go along for the ride, which is which is nice and fun. The biggest variable for right now until we figure out this Pat Bev Russell Westbrook situation, because there's no right. way those two guys are playing together. But it's very interesting in Brooklyn right now because, uh, you know, I've well, we were 
off. I, uh, I talked to one of these reporters that's close with the Kyrie camp. And in the Kyrie camp, they're being like, this is the MVP season. And I'm like, how are you going to be an MVP if you play 50 games or less? Yeah. Um, but if Kyrie, because, you know, I think Kyrie gets now what his value is around the league and that he's not as sought after as he was a, a few years ago. So I, I, I really do think that, you know, at the end of the day, the money's on the line. I know Kyrie can say he's like altruistic and doesn't care about it's it. Contract year. Yeah, but generational wealth here that he's, he's, he's trying to look at. Um, and if he plays in that area, the contract's not going to be far behind. And, and he knows that the Ben Simmons, mm-hmm. you're completely right. Absolute wild card. But with, with Kevin Durant, see, initially I kind of bought into the demand, but then I'm like, oh, this guy had to say this. This guy had to yeah. go all in demand. Yeah, he had no choice. Otherwise he's soft and not looked at as, as a leader. I don't think he meant it. I don't think he like actually meant, hey, it's either you or me. I just think that it stagnated and he had to say something to get the conversation to going to get that meeting in LA with with Joe Side to move on. Yeah. It's like and, his last card. Last yeah. card. Yeah. And I would not be surprised if the boardroom has all access documentary status this year as they go along the season. Because on the press release, when they're like, we're going to move forward with our partnership, it was the Nets logo and the boardroom logo. Oh, Very interesting. look at that. Look at that. See, this is why I'm always talking about, Denny. <laughs> we sit here. We prognosticate. We do all this shit. We don't know what these rich <laughs> motherfuckers are up to. They're always up to something. Oh, man. They got us talking about it. It's fucking hilarious listening to every single NBA podcast and all those guys, these whiny dudes who cover the league being like, well, I thought I was going to have two weeks off. Then they did a trade. Hold up. Absolutely fuck you on that because we have not had a proper off season. Like two years ago, it was six weeks. The year before that, it was two months, man. Full-time gig, this, baby. This what is, are you going to do? This is America. No vacation. Listen, man. After the bubble and everything, the NBA no. people have worked harder than Get probably any to other league. work. Oh. Get to work. Give me my content. <laughs> Tony Jones, I love you, man. Go take your vacation. I've no. been texting with him, trying to get him on the no show. No vacations. And he's no like, vacations. I'm technically on vacation, but I'm still listen, writing. There's only so many science podcasts I can listen to <laughs> this off season. I need more nerdy shit. Come oh, on. It's coming back. Training camp is coming up soon. And hey, maybe we'll see you out there. Who knows? But uh, all right, Benny, let me give you a, uh, a, a bit of a fielder's choice here. Uh, do you want to shelve the Jalen Brown conversation? Because I feel like that's going to persist. Or do you want to get on to baseball? Yeah, let's. We should move. I think. All right, sounds good. All right, to baseball now and the New York Yankees because we only talk about baseball when it pertains to the Yankees. Stop it. Aaron Judge has fifty-one home runs. The league and the season has six more weeks left to go. That's ten shy of Roger Maris's famed sixty-one. Benny, my question to you is: Do you think he gets the eleven to break it in the next six weeks? I mean, there's a damn good chance. Uh, I wish the Yankees were playing a little better because right now he doesn't have a lot of protection in the lineup. And one of the reasons, you know, he was able to do what he was doing early in the year was that protection. But I mean, he's having, you know, one of those otherworldly type of seasons. Like I haven't gotten to watch 
an incredible amount of baseball this year for a number of reasons, but I do follow it closely. And Judge is having like one of the, I remember always, you know, before, you know, the fallout of all of it came out, the way Barry Bonds looked those last few years when he was hitting 70 and getting to that point, every at bat was just like this semi like sure thing. You know, it was like, this guy's going to get on base. He's going to either hit the ball hard or he's going to hit a home run. And you had this weird kind of confidence every time he stepped the bat. Aaron Judge is kind of feeling that way. I was like a little low on Judge earlier in the season because like, motherfucker, take the contract. Extend. Stay here. What's your problem? Bet on yourself. Shut up. And now I'm like, oh, okay. Good for you. Good for you, kid. I I appreciate your gumption, you know? Um, So, but I do think he can do it. I mean, he's, he's looking that way right now. No sign of slowing down. Yankees need the game still. It's not like they're just sitting out in front and they need, you know, like they, they still need to sure up their position in the standings to get where they want to be. Um, they still need the help. The pitching is, you know, getting thin at times and, the, and they need the offense. So I think he looks so dominant that he could break the, uh, the non-steroid record. I think that's the funny thing to talk about now is the fact that we have two home run records essentially until one of these new clean players gets, you know, gets up to 70 and then balances it out. But so I think the the clean record is, is uh, in reach and, and judge could certainly do it. Yeah. Love that. And I also love, because it's like, you know, I've, I also haven't super been able to watch all of the games, but you, you see the narrative surrounding the Yankees on Twitter and they're like, oh, my gosh, how do you lose to the Angels? How do you, like, lose to the A's and, and stuff like that? And then I look up, and they got around 80 wins. And I'm like, man, most teams in the league would kill to be in your position right now. And you're just not enjoying it. So I think that there is a holdover of a generation that grew up with the core four that's not going to be happy unless it's, like, championship. And then even when you do win the championship, it's not going to fulfill you. I mean, I love that too. It's, it's like, but it's, it's, it's such revisionist history as if the core four never had a fucking slump. That's right. You know what I mean? Like they never ripped off a bunch of games where you're like, oh, they suck this week. It's fucking baseball, man. Yeah. It's, it's like a Led Zeppelin song. It's peaks and valleys and And baseball fans. I never understood the impatience of a baseball fan, you know, like it, it never makes sense to me. The whole beauty of the game. Is letting the whole ocean play out and seeing the whole thing, you know? Come on. Um. Anyway, Benny, I, I want to get into the Aaron Judge contract situation. Uh, most people around the league, according to John Hammond of the New York Post, believe that Judge will resign with the Yankees. Um, after this kind of season, are you confident that both parties believe that staying together and continuing their partnership is the best path path forward. I think at this point, man, cause like this is, this is just sheer business and the Yankees and even baseball for that matter have had such a hard time finding stars, finding people who can stand out amongst this, this pack of, you know, like bearded white guys, angry white guys, like, you know, the whole thing that happens in baseball. Um, Aaron Judge is one of those few guys because of his size, his name, the Yankees, the home runs. He's 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 breaking out of baseball a little bit. And he's one of the bigger names and stories to come out of baseball in fucking decades, really, at this point. 
So, and the Yankees, if they're anything, are if they're a business and they're a very smart business usually. And uh, I think the post A Rod Sabathia Yankees, you know, where they were kind of trying to bring up this new core of, of players that didn't really pan out specifically, it was really hard for the sort of passing mainstream Yankees fan. Yeah. You know, the people who turn on the TV looking for names and when they don't see any, the wins and losses are cool and not, but like, it's like, it's part of the show. And the Yankees, I think, realize that and they'd be nuts to let Judge go for, for any price at this point. I think both sides realize that. I think he knows he can maximize his opportunities there. So it seems like it's uh, it's going for, for, for Judge to be a Yankee for a long time, probably just for a shit ton of dough. Love that. Love it. Got, got to keep the people that are keeping the fan bases happy, even though it is sports and it's a business, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, Benny, next headline, one that you brought up to me, and honestly, this may be a, a, another state of baseball conversation. I had no idea that Albert Pujols was near seven home runs until you sent me this story, um, and we haven't seen anybody kind of approach the 700 home run mark since Barry Bonds, and he joined only Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron. Uh, incredible number of, of people, and he's doing it this season back in St. Louis. So, Benny, why isn't this being talked about more? I mean, I think probably because, like, people thought Albert Pujols was dead, you know? And, like, like somewhere in the middle of that Angels contract, everyone's like, okay, no more Albert Pujols. You know, you'll put him out there. He'll hit a low average. He'll get you some home runs. But, like, this guy, you know, who knows? Like, his, this is his sailing into the sunset time. Uh, so when you watch him come back home, you know, to the city that he's beloved in, one rings in, uh, and you watch him at his age not put together like this slow kind of decrepit chase to 700. He's helping win games. In the last month or two, Pujols is on a fucking tear. And he's like, I think he hit, uh, what, like, like, uh, I forget what the number was, but he's hitting an absurd amount of home runs in a short amount of games. And all of a sudden, he looks like the fucking machine again. And you're like, how is this guy pulling this off at this age? He's creeping towards 700. St. Louis is a good team this year. They have a chance to make playoff runs and go through it with Pujols and tow. So I think it's like this beautiful kind of cap to a, uh, which was a strange career, a career in two parts. He had the St. Louis part and the Angels part. When the Angels are turning into one of those like, go there and your career dies sorts of teams. Uh, so like, you know, I, I'm really happy to see Pujols crack out at this age and have a year like he's having. And it's even more special when you're actually watching one of these guys uh, add to the success of a team, watch new, you know, players in their young twenties, you know, just look at this guy in awe. Like it's a cool thing to watch. And it's a beautiful part of the baseball narrative. Pujols is one of the classic, like, good guys and hard workers. There's no question about that. So I love seeing it. And uh, if I've seen anyone play in, in my career as a baseball fan, if he's one of those guys that deserves to be in that top four in that 700 club, great player. It's funny. I went to a Dodger game in L.A. last May, so not not, not this year, but the year before, and 
saw Pujols hit a home run. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. It's going to be one of the last home runs he right. ever hits. Love that. And then this year, he almost knocks Juan Soto out of the home run derby. Like, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so after Pujols, though, because I, I, I do want to get into this a, a little bit more. Um, what other players do you think could maybe make a run at 700 home runs? And I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the list of people that are, are close. Okay. Miguel Cabrera has 506, but he's 39. Probably not yeah. going to happen. Nope. Uh, Nelson Cruz, 41 is 459. Nope. Uh, Stanton, age 32, 371, maybe. Nope. And then Joey Votto, age 38, has 342. We got to look lower on that list because none of these, yeah, none of these players at the top are 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 gonna go anywhere near it like who who's a young who's who's gotten to 200 home runs the quickest you know like that's what i think you got to look at now like who is the youngest power hitter that is on pace for like 40 home runs a year you know there's some some weird guys that are still pretty young that are kicking around but it's hard to see anyone on that path right now i mean uh What's what's Mike Trout up to? What's right. you know? Um, here, let's let's see this. I'm I'm getting numbers up right now. I love it. Uh, you know, if if he hadn't had the whole scandal and, and we've seen that it, it, it was cheating, I'd say maybe like a guy like Tatis or like Soto would be in in that conversation. Uh, young guys with a lot of time ahead of them, um, but I'm not exactly sure there because you know. Um, San Diego looked to have their like stars locked up, and then you know we have this Tatis scandal. He's out eighty games, and you never quite know how he's going to end up on the other side of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's to me, there's really nobody trending there right now. It's 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 tough to see, honestly. Yeah. All right. Do you want to move on to the next Let's headline? Let's go. And, Let's and, go. And if if you get your numbers, you can just throw them out. Yeah. When you yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right, Benny, one more baseball headline to go. And I could not believe when I, I saw this video. I, did, I had no idea that the Mets were trying to channel the interleague uh, uh, Cleveland Indians from Major League here. That's right. Uh, typically, as the ninth inning begins, City Field goes crazy. The Mets bring in their closer, Edwin Diaz. Um, that you start hearing narco trumpeted uh, by Australian musician Tommy Trumpet. Well, this past week, Tommy Trumpet touchdown in Queens, showed up to City Field, and he played the song Narco as Diaz came to the mound in a move that was very reminiscent of uh, uh, Mariano coming out at the end of his career and Metallica showed up. Diaz <laughs> doesn't quite have Mariano Rivera status, but he still got the same treatment. But I guess it's easier to bring a, a trumpet out on to the batter's yeah. box than Metallica out. So, Benny, what did you think of this? I fucking love it. Yeah. I mean, you know me. I, I'm I'm a an advocate for baseball being more fun for ages. Uh, I hope it becomes a trend. I like this interaction with like someone from the crowd and someone coming out, and I think it's so much fun. Like you see the people in the stadium going absolutely insane for when it happens. Um, so I love it. I love to see it. I think this one kind of happened like organically, like. Like all through the season, it's been coming, but then they've sort of added more elements, and then all of a sudden you have a live horn player, you know, rocking this stuff, which is great. Um, there's a big pitfall, though. Mm -hmm. It's like, who's going to come up with all this stuff and blow it? Because closers go away fast. That's right. Remember, remember, Fat, remember Eric Gagne? 
faster than any position in baseball where a guy goes from totally dominant to non-existent in no time. Uh, I've seen it happen, you know, like, like players were like, Oh wow. You had a 50 save season and then they're gone. Yeah. You know, like for whatever reason they're gone. So I think uh, if I were another major league team, I would be pensive on, on when I'm going to do this. Like, like I think there should be a little bit of a criteria of what a player needs to be and how consistently he's done it to get the walk up Savannah bananas, you know, <laughs> thing going on um, for Diaz. I mean, he's real deal. Yeah. He's worth it. He uh, had 57 saves in 18 and he's one of the more dominant closer seasons I've seen. He has 200 career saves. He's under three ERA. Um, he'd be much lower if it wasn't for that first season with the Mets uh, where he kind of, you know, blew up. Um, you know, he at the time was the saving grace of that, Robinson Cano, Jared Kellenick trade, but turns out Kellenick's probably not a real major league player. He's not really breaking through. So Edwin Diaz ended up being the star of that trade. Um, and you know, he's 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 a great he's a great player and he deserves it specifically. Uh, but but beware. Yeah. I'm just I'm just saying, beware. Not everybody is Mariana Rivera, you know? You know what I think? Cause when I first saw this, I uh, agreed with you. You gotta save it for the people. Baseball needs more of this. I don't care if you're oh, a yeah. flash in the pan. We need the, those viral moments to share to get people talking about baseball. And maybe people will come back to the park. Yeah. So, all right, Denny, let's go back real fast, yeah. okay? I have s- some more realistic home run options. Okay. Stanton, to me, is already – he's 13 years in the league. Yeah. He's 32. He's got this injury passing. He's only at 371. So I don't like that. Mike Trout. Has 338 home runs, and he's only 30 years old. Hmm. So, you know, as we're seeing, especially in baseball, uh, or, or I'm sorry, in other sports specifically, like the idea that, uh, you know, Mike Trout could lose his speed, lose some of his average, but keep cranking fucking 40 home runs every year for some team seems fairly realistic. Uh Nolan Arenado's at nearly 300, uh, only 10 years into the league. Bryce Harper, 282 at only 29 years old. Uh, that that could be a big one. Um, so I think some of these younger players are where you got to look. And then, you know, Aaron Judge is only in his seventh year in the league. He's already up to 210. So I think it's, you know, some of these younger guys who might have these freak Hank Aaron kind of careers where at 40 years old, they're still hitting 40 and it's going to be one of them, but none of the guys at the top are anywhere close and players in every single sport. I mean, Tom Brady's playing to that's right. 45 Serena's out here about to win a grand slam at, at 41. So I think the way sciences go is going, we're going to see a lot more people playing it into their forties. So, Oh yeah. A hundred percent. You know, Mike Trout can afford like a cryogenic chamber right. and stuff. Yeah. That, that, that's what we got to get you. What? Next Gaslight record blows up cryogenic chamber. Let's go. Yeah, you should see my duffel bag that comes in the <laughs> venues now. Foam roller, stretching straps, Farragun. It's ridiculous, Danny. What I got to do to walk on stage these days? It's bullshit. Oh, I know. Getting older, man. Why do you think I got this green juice right here made by myself? <laughs> Why do you think I'm drinking out of this mug made by my children? <laughs> made, made, made by my children. 
Love that. All right, two more headlines. We're done with the sports for today. That that was awesome. Um, two quick music entertainment headlines to get to. Benny, how would you feel about selling tickets on Spotify? Because that future may be closer than you think. Uh, Spotify is offering a program now uh, like Eventbrite, like Ticketmaster, kind of a combo deal where they use uh, user listenership to inform its fan first program, an email marketing initiative that allows artists to give their top listeners offers and has gener- generated for the company $300 million for Spotify since 2017. And then they gave it all to Bill Simmons. Um, <laughs> given how Spotify pays per stream, do you want them getting involved in the ticket game? You know, this is a tricky one because you know, I hate, I hate a corporate monster yeah. on, on any, on any front. And, this is corporate monster versus corporate monster. Um, but, you know, listen, Live Nation and Ticketmaster are giants yeah. and they're kind of out of control. Uh, they've been monopolizing their end of the business for years. And, uh, you know, so as much as I have problems with the way Spotify pays artists and a lot of things with their model, this seems to be kind of like a necessary check and balance and someone finally like big enough to to move the needle and dent the business model of these other companies actually exists and i think beyond that spotify has become like absolutely essential for the advertising for live nation and ticketmaster both um it's a natural business move for them to like get into this other section unless they're trying to you know, power play themselves into like buying Ticketmaster or some shit like that. But listen, I said it in the last time we covered this. I'll say it now. The last time I bought shit through Ticketmaster, if I buy tickets for Live Nation shows, I'm fucking shredded with fees. I have no idea where the money's actually going. By the time the artist gets it, it's chopped up fucking percentile points like to a very, very thin margin. And, you know, I think these big, corporations are very smart at doing things incrementally where we start to accept a bunch of bullshit. And then before you know it, it's just part of the narrative. And there was a time when if you wanted to charge twice as much for a ticket as it actually cost, people would have fucking went nuts, but they just trickled this down over time where kind of wore people out. And and now we don't even know what the difference is anymore. Kind of like how in New Jersey, they were supposed to take away the fucking fees on the Garden State Parkway once they were done paying for the thing. You know, why am I still paying for the parkway? And this is what they do to us. So as much as I hate Spotify, I like these companies having a little natural competition in this market. So hopefully things get better for the consumer. I don't know what's another way right now. Yeah, and then I, I could also see it. See, who's going to buy who here? Because I feel like this is kind of like the right. airlines. Either Ticketmaster is going to be like, fuck you, Spotify. We're just going to buy you. Or Live Nation will do that. Uh, or maybe, I, I don't know, Spotify seems to have a, a lot of cash because you want to know something. All of the individual labels that like we like deal with and like work with, they all have a piece of Spotify. So it's going to be interesting to see who's going to go which way. Yeah, Spotify's a monster. Yeah. Um, like, and And I wouldn't discredit the fact that like you know they're acting from a position of power right now because all the movement is going digitally i was just on a call yesterday with someone telling me that 
certain placements on Spotify and shit you can do on there is more important than making a fucking music video now. A beautifully made artistic music video to to really, you know, show what the spirit of your song is about, you know? So it's like this whole industry, especially on the mainstream end, is shifting that way. And and I think if anyone's gonna buy anyone, it's it's Spotify is the monster here, you know. I love the idea of you being on, on a call with somebody my age, hearing about how to get your song onto like indie rock playlists so that people or like discover. This is, this is how it went. This is how it went. It went me going, ugh. And then the person go, no, 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 not ugh. Like, this is why it's good. This, that's, it, would, it would be comical for you to hear it, actually. They're going to get you on TikTok, and I can't wait for that. All right. One- hey, kids, how do you watch your eggs? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what Mark Marin does on TikTok. And it's working for him. So who knows? I'm sure. I'm um, sure. All right. Last headline today, Benny. I thought this one was interesting. Over the break, um, NBC is toying around with the idea of cutting primetime down by one hour, giving their 10 p.m. slot back to local affiliates. So, like, there go all of your, like, Law and Order SVU at, like, 10 p.m. Uh, this would be with the exception of, of when there's uh, Sunday Night Football and other primetime e- events that are in, in the sports, so probably Big Ten football and stuff like that. Um, it would save money for the network. It would give more local content. Um, but kind of a sad thing, you know, we've talk, talked about the decline of broadcast TV, and this seems like the next step in that evolution. Yeah, I yeah, w- what you said, I think – what's happening is pretty obvious, you know, this, this, this move to the digital platform. So, you know, what's happening doesn't surprise me at all. It seems, you know, smart for companies to start doing this, but from people from our generation, it is a strange pill to swallow. You know, I'm from the TGIF generation, you know, where like, you know, the, the eight to 10 slots, the nine to 11 slots and like primetime TV when I was growing up were such a big deal. You know, yeah. this was like where everything that you cared about was on. And honestly, I can't tell you the last fucking time I've turned on a network television station at like eight or nine o'clock to catch the new episode of anything. It's just not the way I consume anymore. And I'm an old fuck. <laughs> so I can't imagine the way kids are consuming uh, you know, which is way beyond the NBC model. So it's is uh not surprising, but like you said, I guess a little nostalgically sad for for old people like us or me. I should say. <laughs> hey man, sorry. No, no, that was more honest than you think. No, but I mean, if you turn on these 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 channels for prime time, it's like how many? T- like I'm not gonna watch Family Feud every day. Like I'm not gonna watch CSI Las Vegas. Like so, yeah. it's like. Diminishing returns at this point. Yeah. Chicago EMTs, <laughs> Chicago pizza men, Chicago. What else we got to add into that series? The Chicago dance troupe needs help from Chicago fire. I don't like. Oh, man. That's different than the bear. Anyway, uh, plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the tune podcast at gmail.com. Two P's in there. Follow us on all the social platforms. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at the Tune Up HQ. Be sure to subscribe on the YouTube channel. If you're here joining us live, thank you very much. If you're watching uh, it back also, thank you very much. These numbers help a lot. Uh, sub- subscribe, sub- subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Man, I should never say things with three syllables three times fast. Anyway, if you want to follow Big Man, he is at Benny Horowitz on Instagram, not on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm at Denny Gallagher on Instagram. Benny, you got anything else? 
Should I close out by trying to say familiarity again? So I can make you feel better? <laughs> familiarity. Yeah. Uh, the show has ended. Go in peace. You've been listening to and watching The Tune-Up. Thank you. <laughs>